Today we come to a familiar story with quite possibly the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, but I would encourage you this morning not to start with what you've heard or read before or what you think that you know about this passage, because I think in doing so, we may miss the flow and the context of the passage and the main points that Jesus is making to Nicodemus here. So first, let's consider the setting. Nicodemus is a rabbi, one of the Pharisees, even a member of the Sanhedrin. It says in verse 1, he's a ruler of the Jews. He comes to Jesus at night, curious about the teachings of this man who does signs and speaks with God's authority. We'll, incur- we'll f- come across Nicodemus two other times in the book of John. We see him in John 7:49 through 52, where he speaks up for Jesus against most of the Pharisees and is rebuked. Are you connected with them? And then again in John 19:39, where he brings spices for Jesus' burial and even more closely associates with Jesus and his followers. Here in his first recorded encounter with Jesus, he seems uncertain, possibly not even yet believing but seems to grow in his commitment to Jesus and his teachings as we go through the book of John. What is going to move John, or not John, but Nicodemus, from the curious scholar sneaking around at night to being willing to give a generous gift and publicly identify with Jesus and his death? We see three exchanges in this passage between Nicodemus and Jesus, which we'll look at in a moment But perhaps the most important part of the passage is not verse 16, although it is important, but rather what Jesus says in verses 19 through 21. Jesus in this little section returns to what we saw back in John chapter 1, this theme that he is the light of the world, he's come into the world, and the darkness has rejected him, his own people have turned away from him. And again, this question of belief that we see throughout the book of John is raised. The light has come into the world. Many rejected the light because it would expose their evil deeds. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light and it reveals that his works are pleasing to God and in fact wrought by, worked out by God himself. And so when Jesus says this at the end of this back and forth with Nicodemus, what is he calling Nicodemus to do? What is he calling us to do? I think he was calling to Nicodemus and to us, come to the light. Come to the light. Let's, let's go now through these three back and forths between Nicodemus and Jesus in this passage. The first idea here is that you can't be part of God's kingdom unless you are born again. Nicodemus begins by acknowledging Jesus as a teacher. Rabbi, we know you've come from God as a teacher. How does he know? No one can do these signs unless God is with him. Nicodemus acknowledged Jesus as a teacher from God because of the signs. And while it was true that Jesus was a teacher, he is more than just another teacher. And this is the error of many even in the early founding of our country. They believed in Jesus in sort of a theoretical sense or as a a good moral person, someone who has ethical lessons to teach us, but not someone that we need to believe in or trust in or follow after. Just another teacher. Perhaps the best of the teachers but just another teacher. While it is true also, as Nicodemus points out, that Jesus did signs, he's more than just another prophet. There are many religions who say, well, yeah, of course Jesus was a prophet, but he wasn't just a prophet. He's God come down to be the prophet. We would expect Jesus to say something. We would be flattered if someone came and said, hey, we know that you teach the truth. Will you teach me? 
right? Well, of course I'll teach you, right? That, that makes us feel good about ourselves, right? That's not what Jesus' response was, though. His response was not, oh, you acknowledge that I'm a teacher? Great, let me teach you some things. He says, he confronts Nicodemus, and he says, you need to be born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, it's easy for us to say, be born again, because it's kind of a Christian-y phrase without thinking about what it means, right? But what does it mean to be born again? Birth is life, right? Now, life begins earlier. We understand that, and that's important in a whole bunch of other discussions, right? But what is significant about birth? Birth is the point at which other people see that you have life. Think about that for a minute. Birth is the point at which other people see that you have life. When a baby's born, what lets them know it's alive? When he, lets, he or she lets out that first scream or cry or noise, right? You see that the baby is alive. Jesus says something has to happen to you so that you have life and it is evident to those around you. To be born again means then that you need a second life, a new life, a different life. As you might expect, Nicodemus is puzzled. He immediately assumes Jesus is talking about a physical life instead of a spiritual life. How can a man be born when he's old? There's certain aspects of, of physics and biological processes that prevent this from happening, right? He's too big. It's a one-way process. There's a lot of things that are, that are the reason that Nicodemus would say, How? Nicodemus's question fits very neatly with our common modern belief that only what we see and touch is real, right? If we can't come up with a rational explanation, it must not be true. That's where we're at in society today, right? Not that we're a society of rational people, because we do a lot of things that don't make sense, but we basically reject the supernatural is the point that I'm making. We tend to elevate science, which has become its own religion, and reason above any kind of supernatural explanation. So if we can't explain it by science, it must not be true. We reject God's explanation for problems in the world. God says the reason for problems in the world are things like sin and death and human selfishness and people going their own way and people not believing in God. We don't want to accept those explanations, so we come up with alternative explanations, man-made labels and concepts. The reason society is broken is because of systematic racism. The reason that society is broken is because of mental illness. The reason that society is broken is because we're not getting young people engaged enough and we don't follow a progressive political agenda. These are the alternative, or whatever, we don't follow the American dream. Whatever you want that's not the Bible, we substitute the Bible, substitute it for the Bible, and say this is the explanation for why these things are the way that they are. When you exclude the supernatural, of course you're going to be right where Nicodemus is and say, how is this possible, right? Humanly, it's impossible, right? Think of Jesus' illustration about repentance for the rich man, right? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to turn to God apart from his grace, right? And people have tried to come up with a natural explanation for that too. When he said, eye of the needle, 
He didn't actually mean a needle that you sew with. He meant a gate that was called the needle and the camel would have to bend really low. No, the point is not that the camel had to humble himself to come to God in his own good works. The point is the camel can't fit through the gate. The point that Jesus is making is you can't be born again by your own power. It doesn't work. Jesus makes it clear that he's talking about a different kind of life. And for us to accept Jesus' explanation, we have to put off the pride that makes us think that Jesus' explanation is beneath us, that we've got a better idea, that we can explain it in some other way. Jesus makes it clear that he's talking about some different kind of life, spiritual life, not a second experience of physical birth, but something new, something different, something unique. He uses various words to explain the contrast here. He says, born of water and flesh, born of the Spirit. Now, when we look at that, I think it's important for us to think about when he says born of water and the Spirit, and then in verse 6 he says born of flesh versus born of spirit, which pairs of words go together? Is it water and flesh contrasted with spirit, or is it flesh contrasted with water and spirit? If we look at the way the verse is structured, water and spirit are paired together, and then flesh and spirit are contrasted in the next verse. So there are people who've said, well, being born of water, that's, you know, the fluid that the baby is in in the mother's womb. And while that's a creative explanation, I don't think that's the point that's being made here. Think about the context in which Jesus is speaking. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He knows all of the Old Testament law. What was an important feature of Old Testament law? What did we see last week in the, in the miracle that Jesus did? washing, water, purifications, cleansing. That was their life, day in, day out, right? Jesus is saying, you need cleansing by implication from your sin. He's saying you need the Spirit, a supernatural life and birth, not a physical one. That's the contrast that I think he's making here. Not, you need to be baptized and have the Holy Spirit give you life. That's not in the passage at all. Not, uh, any of these other sorts of things, but rather you need cleansing and you need new spiritual life. Jesus points out the mysterious nature of this. He says, don't be amazed that I said you must be born again. And then he gives the illustration of the wind. And he, he, he plays on words a little bit here, right? Almost every time we see this word, it means spirit. But it's pretty clear when he, in this context, is talking about the effects of this, he's using wind as an illustration of the work of the Spirit, right? It's invisible. You see it moving the tree branches. You see it great destructive power or providing useful power with windmills and all those sorts of things, right? But you can't see it. But how do you know it's real? Because of what it does. In the same way that you see the effects of wind, see its power, see that it's real, you see the Spirit's work, His power, and the effects that He produces in people's lives. And we expect it to be something along the lines of, we see the Spirit's power because of the works that He does. But look at what John says at the end of verse 8. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We'd expect it to be something about the Spirit, but he immediately jumps and says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying the power of the Spirit is seen in those who are born of the Spirit. Just like the power of the wind is seen in the effects as it passes by. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. 
So Jesus is going to give them a fuller explanation in the last part of the passage along with the rebuke. To be born again and to receive life, I think this section is saying, you must believe in the Son of Man sent by God to die. God had already revealed the way of faith. Why does Jesus rebuke Nicodemus here? It's kind of unfair, right? Nicodemus is coming and saying, teach me and, and answer my questions. And then Jesus yells at him and says, you're a teacher and you don't get it? How is that response justified? Well, if anybody in Israel was supposed to get it, Nicodemus should have. You didn't get on the Sanhedrin, you didn't become a ruler of the Jews, you didn't rise to a position of prominence without having some pretty detailed knowledge of the law and Old Testament history and all of these other sorts of things, right? Now, some of that had been corrupted over time in their distraction with all the arguments of the rabbis. Not the Bible had been corrupted, but their, their attention had been moved away from what Scripture actually said to all of these arguments among the different schools of rabbis. Even so... Nicodemus, of all the people in Israel, had access to the truth more readily than your average person walking down the street going about their daily business. And Jesus is just laying the truth out for him and Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. And so this is not Jesus saying, Nicodemus, you're stupid. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're blind to this truth that's right in front of you. The Pharisees should have known the Scriptures. In fact... Jesus says in another place, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, or some take it as a command, search the scriptures. You think you found eternal life there, but I'm right in front of you and you don't even see me, right? They should have known the truth. There's all these pictures in the Old Testament. There's all of these things that point to the coming of the Messiah. And when he's standing right in front of them, they're like, well, he's, he's, he does some interesting things. He teaches a little bit different way than we do, but he's God come down. Do you not see that? Jesus spoke from knowledge, not from speculation. Verse 11, we speak of what we know, testify of what we've seen. It's not the, the back and forth of the rabbis. I think, I feel this tension when I go to preach a passage of Scripture because it is... I think very because we have short attention spans, because we tend to hear one thing and latch on to it, for a number of factors, there's a part of me that when I say something of what the Bible says, I want to say, and then here's what this passage says, and here's what this passage says, and here's what this passage says, because I don't want someone to misunderstand what I'm saying about this one, right? Jesus didn't worry about that for the most part. He just said, here's what God says, right? And this is a huge contrast between the rabbis, who are even worse than what I described about saying, here's the two other things the Bible says about this. They would have all these arguments. They would say, well, maybe it could be this, or maybe it could be this, or maybe it could be this. And Jesus just comes and says, here's what God said. And even when he did that, verse 11, you do not accept our testimony. Despite his authoritative speaking, despite the signs that accompany it, they did not accept his testimony. He builds on this and he says, if earthly truths don't make sense to you, how am I going to explain anything to you that's more complicated than that? And there's all sorts of arguments about what he means by earthly truths because the fact of the new birth doesn't seem like an earthly truth, but what does he mean, right? 
I think Jesus' point is this. If you can't understand what I'm saying to you by the simple illustration that I gave you of physical birth, then you're certainly not going to ex- understand all of, the, all of the nuances of it beyond that, right? Something along those lines. Even though men did not believe God's words, God condescended. Verse 13, no one has gone up into heaven, but the Son of Man has come down. So despite their blindness, despite their rejection of his words, like we saw in John 1 and now here in John 3, God bends low to bring the truth to people. And then, probably the second most important verse in this section, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You're welcome to turn over, if you want, to Numbers chapter 21. I'm just going to read for you these verses so we understand what's being said here. We'll start in verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And then they say another really interesting thing. And we loathe this miserable food. Wait a minute. I thought you said you didn't have any food. They had food. They didn't like it. So they're complaining about it. What is God's response? Not in, I am just got annoyed. But in righteous judgment, he sends fiery serpents, poisonous snakes among the people And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about everyone who is bitten when he looks at it will live. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived." Now, was God setting up an idol? No, they weren't worshiping the snake. They were saying, here's this picture of judgment from God, right? And if we look on this picture of judgment from God in faith that God will deliver us from it, He will. Think about the implications for Jesus and His death. Sign of God's judgment. They will look on Him whom they have pierced. They will look and then live. The Son of Man must be lifted up. There's tons of imagery that connects these two stories together, right? And on the point of idolatry, if I'm remembering correctly, I'll try to find the verse for tonight. The Israelites did end up worshiping this later on, and so Moses broke it and threw it away, right? The point was never about the snake. The point was the picture of Jesus. Here's a sign of God's judgment lifted up before the people. Are you going to deal with the disaster that has come upon you because of your sin? In your way, you're going to die. Are you going to deal with it in God's way? Looking on Him in faith, you will live. And so this verse, John 3.14, is saying, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I am going to be lifted up. Not a bronze serpent on a pole, but a human on a cross. I'm going to die that you might live. Are you going to believe in it? If you do, you'll have eternal life. You'll be born again you'll have the new birth. 
Not by your power, because you can't give yourself new life, but by God's power. And then we come to this familiar verse. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, there's a lot of people take this verse and they say, so God so loved the world. But we don't put the emphasis on the so. What's the emphasis on? God loved the world in this way that He sent Jesus so that you might believe. Right? Don't emphasize the so. Emphasize the Jesus and the believe because that's the point of the verse. If you believe, you have life. If you don't, you have death. Why? Well, not because God sent Jesus to carry out eternal judgment in His first coming, verse 17, but rather to die, to deal with sin, to make a way of life for people. And yet, that doesn't mean that judgment is forgotten just because Jesus doesn't come to carry it out right then and there. Verse 18 says, He who believes in Him is not judged, but if you don't believe, you're already judged, right? God doesn't have to do something extra to condemn people because they are already guilty sinners who run away from God and go their own way and love themselves and reject what is good. God doesn't have to do anything more to say, I need a reason to punish them. They are condemned already by all the things that they have done. Creation says there's a God. We say, no, it just happened by accident. Our consciences say there's right and wrong. We're like, no, it's just stuff our parents taught us. We explain away what we know to be true because if we accepted what is true, we would have to turn to God in faith and obedience, and we don't want to do it on our own. But that's where we are, and we are condemned unless we turn in faith to Jesus. So, we see the carrying out of the future judgment in a passage like Acts 17.31 where Paul says, God has appointed a day in which He will judge men by my gospel, the message about Jesus, through a man whom He, he is appointed. That's the day when the judgment is going to be carried out. Jesus didn't come to judge at His first coming, but there were many who were under God's judgment nonetheless. And there are many today, even though that final judgment has not fallen on the earth, there are many today who also are under God's judgment because they do not believe in Jesus. And so we come to those verses that I, I mentioned at the beginning that I think are so important to this passage. God provides a test to see whether you believe or not. Here's the test. The basis of judgment is that when Jesus came, many rejected Him. Verse 19, The light came in the world. Men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. So what's the test? If you see Jesus and you run the other way, you failed the test. You are in judgment. You are in darkness. You don't have the life of God in you. But if you see Jesus and you come to the light, the light reveals God's work in you. It says in verse 21, that His deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It's God's work flowing out of your life, revealed by the light of Jesus. We don't get to get credit for it. That's not the point. But the point is, we will come to the light and receive the life of God or show that we have the life of God if we belong to God. So the question for Nicodemus was this. 
Do you come to the light? Think about Jesus saying this at night to a rabbi who's sneaking around because he doesn't want anybody to see that he's talking to Jesus. So there's physical darkness and there's spiritual darkness. And Jesus is saying, they're not the same thing, but they are connected. So when we get to the midpoint of the book and people say, he's crazy and he has a demon and all these sorts of things. And Nicodemus says, doesn't the law say to give him a chance? And they say, hey, watch yourself. Are you from Galilee too? Are you on his side? Nicodemus is beginning to make this transition from sneaking around in the dark to openly identifying with Jesus. And when Jesus dies and Nicodemus gives his generous gift and probably helps with the burial of Jesus, I think that that story arc comes to the point from hiding at night, trying to cover up what he's doing, living in sin and darkness, starting to believe in Jesus, now he's a follower, right? That's the question for each of us. Will you come to the light? If you won't, it shows that you don't know Him. You don't have His life. You love your sin. You don't want to come to the light because Jesus is here and Jesus is the light. And Jesus says things like, I know what's in your heart that you love yourselves and not God. I know what's in your heart that you have lust and murder and greed and all of these sorts of things, right? Do we want people to know that? Absolutely not. So we run away from the light because we don't want people to see how bad we really are. But if we come to Jesus, He deals with that sin and changes us and starts to produce in us good works wrought in God that the light continues to reveal which are evidence that we have eternal life. So like for Nicodemus, the question is, are you going to keep hiding in the darkness? Because if you do, what's the end of it? Damnation, destruction, death. If you come to the light, what's there? Light and life and liberty, as it says in Galatians. That's what you have to decide. And yes, we know God has to do the work and all those sorts of things, but John's not emphasizing that here. John is emphasizing, are you going to come to the light and believe in Jesus, or are you going to hide in darkness? And if you have come to the light, what should you be doing? Well, there should be evidence of those works wrought in God. We know that, right? You ought to be doing what the disciples do in the first part of John that we looked at, right? Go and find somebody else. Hey! You're in the darkness. You don't even know it, but you're in the darkness. Come to the light. Hey, you're in the darkness. Come to the light. Why wouldn't we do that as people who have received such a great gift? Sometimes it seems so hard, and yet, why not? Come to the light. Let's pray. Dear God, these closing verses are so convicting. Even as Christians, there are things that we want to hide away that we don't want anyone to see because if they did, they would not think well of us. They would, they would 
turn away from us, they, they would say, who is that person? And how much greater a sense of that for those who are lost in sin and have no relationship whatsoever with you. Lord, if it needs to be purged from us, how much more from those who have never come to know you as their Savior? What a great obstacle that only your power can overcome that pride, that fear, that, that sense that I, I don't want anybody to know and I don't want anybody to see and it's safer to hide away. Dear God, I pray that by your Spirit's power we would take this message to the people around us who need to hear it. Lord, I think, to my knowledge, everyone in this room would, would say, I have come to the light. I know God. I have eternal life. If not, Lord, convict the hearts of anyone here today who doesn't know you and help them to see that they must come to you. And if they refuse to come to you, it can only mean one thing. They are lost in their sins. Lord, if, if we have come to you, help us not to just see this as a light or unimportant thing, to forget the significance of it, to fail to be excited about it, Lord, but to rejoice that by your power we have received the opportunity to become the sons and daughters of God. You keep your promises. You are faithful to your word. You have come to bring life. May we enjoy it and share it and live it out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.